today we continue in the gospel according to Matthew. Uh, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. If you are unfamiliar with the Sermon on the Mount or it's been a minute since you've opened up a Bible, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, is kind of the pinnacle of Jesus' teachings. Depending on who you read in terms of scholarship, some think it's like a collection of Jesus' teachings that were all pushed together. Others will say that it is a like a long sermon that Jesus delivers. However you think about it, the words that Jesus gives are the framework for what it looks like to live in a place of abundance. And so we, we come to this place in Matthew chapter 6, picking up in verse 25. This is what we read. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can have a seat. So do not worry about your life. This, this sounds like something Jesus would say, does it not? This is something that you would see cross-stitched on a pillow. Um, by the way, this is totally tangential, and sorry if this is a distraction to the teaching text. Christy Heilman walks in this morning, and uh, apparently at one point I made a joke about a passage that you would not likely see uh, on, a, on, a, on a pillow, stitched on a pillow, and so she graciously stitched uh, a, a proverb on, on a pillow, because the Lord will avenge you. Um, tragic irony and all of that. But this, however, is something I do think you would naturally see stitched on a pillow, is do not worry about your life. This seems like something that, would, that Jesus would naturally say, and then my response is, sure. Okay, Jesus. And as, as like a pastor, I often feel out of my depth in walking into the world of the scriptures uh, because they invite us to encounter Jesus, and I don't know if you've heard a thing or two about Jesus, but Jesus is known as the resurrected Lord. That is, he went to a cross, which was actually his exaltation as the one who would defeat death by dying to death. And then the spirit of the living God raised Jesus from the dead to never die again. Oh, and by the way, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. So this is the Jesus to whom I'm saying, like, we are invited into his presence. So more often than not, I feel a bit um, whelmed to overwhelmed when I'm bringing us to this place or inviting us, suffice it to say, I feel out of my depth, and this is um, the same. I mean, if you take the Sermon on the Mount and where we've been, this is a little review, I suppose. 
Um, but in the span of a few chapters, Jesus brings us face to face with things like, I don't know, poverty, idolatry, divorce, sex, disordered desires, our whole life devotion and practice with God. And then Jesus right thereafter says, do not worry about your life. So let me just ask, how's it going? It's 2022. How, how are we feeling? In some sense, I think like anxiety is just ambient in the air. It's just, it's all around us. But in the midst of that, we hear this word from Jesus this morning. This is kind of like saying, uh, don't think about the purple elephant. And what are you thinking about right now? Probably, maybe you're thinking about purple elephants unless you're like, don't tell me what to think. But then you're maybe still thinking about purple elephants. It's, this is the same. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. And true story, I read this passage and I hear Jesus say through the scriptures, do not worry about your life. And immediately I am worried about whether I will have anything substantive to say about worry. I'm like, well, I, have, I, have I worried enough in my life to be able to comment or draw us into a place? This is, this is just real life. We hear, do not worry. And there we find ourselves worrying. Like, would I possibly have something to say? And so I suppose I, I could throw out a bunch of the statistics and the you know, pithy quotes that I read that are really good and obscure and maybe would make you think that I'm smarter than I actually am. I could throw out all of this information about anxiety, but my guess is that I don't have to convince anyone here that the moment we find ourselves in, like the bodies we find ourselves in, if they're not shot through with anxiety, then they're surrounded by it. And I, I, just like a, a, a brief disclaimer about that statement is anxiety is complicated. I, I, it's both natural and clinical. That is, it can be acute and disabling, um, and it can be general and just frustrating. It's both natural and clinical. And, and in the midst of this, Jesus is not condemning clinical anxiety. If that's something that you're working through and, and you with a, a, like a clinician or a, like a physician, you like are receiving, I don't know, like an SSRI, you're like actually balancing your neurochemistry, yes and amen to that. And hear Jesus not speaking condemnation when he says, do not worry. Because what Jesus is saying here is more about rhetoric. It's more about what he's saying than making some sort of psychological assessment. And sure, when I say that we have an anxiety problem, I simply mean anxiety has the capacity to touch all of us in all of our lives. I think again about like the movement of this passage that we just heard. Do not worry about your life. In other words, do not worry about your life or your body. Do not worry about your food or your looks. Do not worry about your basic needs or your career ambition. Do not worry about your appearance online or in a mirror. The point that Jesus is moving us toward and the point that Jesus is going at great length to make is that anxiety has the capacity to touch all of us in all of life. Because all of us eat, all of us drink, and praise Jesus, all of us get dressed. 
So this is a good thing. But, but no one at no time is exempt from this thing that is just ambient in the air, this anxiety. From your morning commute to that social media break in the middle of the day to that like end of day, like checking your bank account and you're like, oh my gosh, I really went hard this weekend. That's like, that's something that you feel and you don't just feel it abstractly, you feel it in your body. It has a bearing on you as a person because anxiety has the capacity to touch all of us in all of life, which is where Jesus' diagnosis comes. It encapsulates all of this. But take notice of what Jesus is doing here. He narrows in on three specific things, which is helpful for us today. So if you're a note taker, Jesus notices or narrows in on food, drink, and clothing. And what's, what's important about these three things? Well, these are bare necessities. Um, if, if Maslow's hierarchy of needs means anything to you, then um, here it is. Those are the basic needs. It's basically this pyramid that says, before you can think about these existential questions of who am I and why am I here, if you're hungry, that is your body is riddled with pangs of hunger, you don't care who you are, you're just wanting to eat. So Jesus narrows in on necessities. And also, remember who Jesus is talking to. There on that Galilean hillside are gathered around him people who are riddled with like complex lives of poverty and pain. And so he's speaking to the bare necessities because the people with him are often lacking the bare necessities, food, drink, and clothing. And perhaps in that crowd, there's a few landowners and maybe some priests. But by and large, Jesus is speaking to the working class poor of his day and in turn, Jesus is naming the anxiety they carry. And so I don't, I don't know what the one-to-one -one translation is from what we're reading here of food, drink, and clothing to 2022, but whatever the anxiety is that we carry or your friend carries or your mom carries or your cousin carries or your, like, whatever that is, take a moment, like, and just consider that. Because Jesus, as we move into this, is, is drawing our attention to that thing. See, the crowd, and I would dare say we in our own way, we know life's struggles, but distinct to the crowd, they actually know those pangs of hunger, and they wear the ragged condition of their life on their back, like their clothes are worn thin. Or as the Jesuit priest Gregory Boyle translates this into modern terms, he says this, talking about the crowd knowing the struggle it isn't simply that being poor means having less money than the privileged. It's that being poor means living in a continual state of acute crisis. And hear that again, because it is so good. Th this condition, this life, it is living in a continual state of acute crisis. That is where Jesus is drawing our attention, because this, is, according to Boyle, is what they have to lug around every day. So when our most basic needs, they, they go unmet, those things of curiosity and wonder, they, they are immediately out of reach. There's no consideration of ambition and self and desires because those things are pushed aside in the face of the present need. This is Jesus' focus, the acute state of crisis plaguing the women and men standing around him on that Galilean hillside. And I, I, I guess one to do as best I can to help this touch down um, because it would stand to reason that in a community like ours where our basic needs are essentially givens, there's, there's very few, if any of us, who are wondering when our next meal will come. 
or if it will come. We're rather considering what it will taste like and where we will get it from. So in, in a community like ours, you would assume that if our basic needs are met, that anxiety would also be in a steady decline. If not, like, altogether gone. Does that map? Like, is that making sense? If anxiety rises because our basic needs are not met, then it would stand to reason that if our basic needs are met, that it would also tamp down our anxiety. Are we tracking? Let's give some, some nods, some sense. Okay, here we go. Like, this is, we're, we've been doing this for a while, folks. We can talk back. I mean, Zula's the only one giving us some love here. So, um, so if that, if that stands, if that stands then all we need to do is correct our circumstances and our anxiety will subside, except the exact opposite is happening. As more of our basic needs are met, the anxiety is actually increasing. There's this gal, I don't know, Jean Twang, and she is a, a psychology professor out in San Diego, and she wrote this book, iGen, and before iGen came out in 2017, this was featured in an Atlantic article, and this is a quote. She says this, it's not an exaggeration to describe today's young adult generation, who she calls iGen, as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades. Five years ago, those words were published, which means that seven years ago, she was writing those words and filtering through that and doing her research. And I think those words were prophetic. Because there is a sense of unease, of dis-ease that has settled into the imagination of a generation. And eliminating basic needs does not eliminate anxiety because you know what we do? We just find more stuff to worry about. Which begs the question that Jesus asks, can any one of you by worrying about your life add a single day to it? Can you add a single hour to your life by worrying? And the short answer is no. But it's, it's interesting to consider how Jesus unpacks this no, which is where we're going to spend our time. Three times Jesus says, do not worry. And on each occasion, um, it's a command how does that settle in? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is commanding those people with him to not worry. It's not an invitation. It's not a request. It's not like, hey, if you, if you feel well today, then maybe set worrying aside. It's actually like he's speaking a rebuke to the worry. And when you measure Jesus' speech here with regards to worry against the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you could make the case that Jesus wants to get this bit about anxiety deeper into our soul than stuff on murder and adultery and anger and forgiveness. Because it is the longest speech that he's going to give on this specific aspect of life. There is something about anxiety that distinctly threatens our discipleship to Jesus. And just hold that, because what do I mean when I say discipleship to Jesus? Well, I mean this whole life devotion. Disciple is a weird word. I'm imagining most of you are not tweeting out the word disciple, or even it's not like in our lexicon. So apprentice. Does apprentice sound more accessible? Maybe you know like a plumber or a pipe fitter. And if you're going to become a master electrician or an electrician in general, then you will apprentice under someone. You will learn the form and the practices that will give way to being able to actually do that thing. Like fit a pipe or make it so that your sewage lines are not overflowing into your basement. These are, these are good skills that people hold on to and then they live from that. It's a vocation. Discipleship is vocational language. It comes to bear on your work and your life and your thoughts. When Jesus is talking here, to my mind, and I could be totally wrong about this, but it seems as though there is something about anxiety that distinctly threatens discipleship to Jesus. 
And so what is that threat? Well, I, I think it's that anxiety harbors a convincing lie. That is, anxiety holds on to it, makes space within itself for a convincing lie. Because this word worry carries a lot of meaning. In Greek, which is the language the New Testament was originally written in, the, the word is merimanao. Why don't we give that a try? Merimanao. There we are. A bunch of Greek scholars you are. And this, this word, merimanao, is uh, the translation of this verb. It actually comes with a, a, um, a positive and a negative. There is a positive aspect to worry and a negative aspect to worry. And in the context that Jesus is talking, it is, it is negative. There is a, like a degrading aspect to it. But when you think of worry in a positive way, it is a care, maybe for your welfare or the welfare of your neighbor. There is a good care. Worry, then, is misdirected care. It is care that actually comes back in and burrows into you, creating a pit of despair. Worry, in this context, is misdirected care. The convincing lie that's nested in anxiety is, is, sounds something like this. I don't have enough. I don't know if this is going to work. Or on the other end of that, it's if I don't do this, then it won't be done right. I, I know that you're trying to help, but just let me take care of this. I got this. And we dress this language up with pleasantries and platitudes, but at the end of the day, there's something about control that has gripped us. And if we can control it, then maybe that despair can stay down a little bit longer. This is the convincing lie nested in anxiety that ultimately tries to guard us against the unknown. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist or a therapist. I find that stuff fascinating. I think this is just the wisdom of Jesus coming to bear on our world today. Because on the other hand of this, Jesus wants to direct his disciples' attention, not just inward, like just entire introspection. He actually wants to direct their attention outward to receive healing inward. Like that, that trajectory is important. He wants to direct their attention outward to receive healing inward. In other words, Jesus calls us to see and notice God's provision all around us so we can be reminded, so we might have a truth to combat the lie that is buried and burrowing deep within our inner woman, our inner man. And what does Jesus say? J Jesus, I mean, you've seen them all, all around. It's, you almost ignore them. But he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't have storehouses. They're not gathering grain and putting it away. Just and if you just walk around, this week I've just noticed we have all these house finches, and they're, they're kind of invasive. They, like, push other birds. That was just kind of lame. But we have all, they're everywhere. They, they, and what are they doing? They're living their best life. Except for, like, when you see them get the hit guy car or something, like, that's a bad day in a bird's life. But in some sense, they're not concerned about where provision will come from. They just flutter about, and they find it. And Jesus is saying, look, look at them. And how much more valuable are you than those birds? Or, or he goes so far as to say, look at the fields. They're beautiful. I, when I walk to the bus, I walk down 31st. And right there, 31st and Ingersoll uh, is, is where I meet the 60 to come downtown. And there's this lot that I have no idea what they're going to develop it into, but it oftentimes will be overgrown, like chest-high weeds. And there's a point, and it's happening now, where those weeds that are full of thistle and thorns give way to these vibrant yellows and purples and blues and magenta. Like, and it's, it's breathtaking if you actually pause and consider it. 
Even weeds, the things that we take great effort to pull from our yards, they have a type of beauty. And Jesus says, if you look at those, you are more valuable than they are because you are more beautiful. See, Jesus sees a world that is ablaze in the presence of God. It is set fire with beauty where life is this gift that the Heavenly Father actually wants to give to us, not so that we can just give it away to somebody else so that we could hold on to it. So we could receive who we are, that we are his beloved. I don't, and I'm just going to pause here for a moment. Do you hear the audacity of Jesus in this? You, each and every one of you, in the state of your life, in the affairs of your hearts, like th- you have more value than the creatures in creation, that there is a, a, like an apex, a pinnacle nature to who you are. H- how's that, how's that feel? You don't have to say, you can if you want, maybe to your neighbor if you came with them and you trust them. But like for me, that is one of the hardest things to receive is the belovedness that the Father speaks through the Son is that I am actually worthy of that. That takes a great amount of emotional energy to believe, to actually trust the things that Jesus says to us and over us. But the audacity of Jesus here is that he not only sees you, he doesn't only notice you, but he wants to be with you. And we're actually released from the plaguing need to drum up our own desirableness because the Father's already spoken words of belovedness over us. This actually allows us to live with a non-anxious presence in the midst of what can feel like chaotic and turbulent waters. We don't have to drum up our own lovableness because we've already been loved by God in Christ. But rather than plunging ourselves into the care of God, we continue to define what is good and bad our own terms. And part of the threat of anxiety is that it really obstructs how we see ourselves. It's that convincing lie. See, littered throughout Jesus' teaching, he names our value. He says that you and me, that we are dearly loved. And yet we like... I don't know if you felt this. Maybe this is just like a teaching for me, which seems to be like 30%. No, the other way, 70%. <laughs> These teachings are just directed at like what God is doing in my heart. And, and I, don't, I don't know how this sits for you, but like I, I tread rather cautiously here because it feels a bit presumptuous for me, Kyle, hi, um, to say I am loved by the creator of the cosmos. Seems a bit presumptuous that I am like, that the spirit of the living God dwells in me and speaks delight, sings praises over me in the heavens. Like, I don't know, that seems a bit much. Like, yes, die for me, that's cool. But I don't know, the whole like singing praises over me, I don't, what is that? So we, this this is the beauty is that God does not account for love and life in the calculated and measured ways that we do. God lavishes love over us. See, we, we, this is maybe um, an insight into my internal dialogue, uh, so here you go. Maybe, and maybe this resonates, maybe it doesn't. We say things like this, God loves me, I know he does no matter what, but I've been testing his patience a bit lately. God knows my coming out and going in. We just, you know, we quote scripture back to God. We love to do that. God knows my going out and coming in, but I imagine he doesn't really like where I've been lately. And I'm sure that he's winced a couple of times when he's seen some of those things that I've been doing. God is my provider, yes and amen, as long as I, um, you know, pull my weight. 
God is not calculated and measured with his love. It is inexhaustible and he wants to lavish us. That is the truth to combat the convincing lie that we do not have enough. And God draws our attention through Jesus' words outward so we might receive healing inward because anxiety has the capacity to touch all of us in all of life. And you know what all of this does? It helps us to slow down. Do you know that you actually have to stop to look at a bird? Because they're going to like fly away or something. You have to pause to notice what flowers are doing in a field. How are we doing at slowing down? I know this is an age where mindfulness is helpful, and I think mindfulness is a helpful practice. And yet, have we considered what we're, what's around us, what we're taking in, and how Jesus might be intending to meet us in the midst of this? See, this is why Jesus can say this. He can say, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need him. He can invite us to confront our anxiety because he actually has the means to combat the convincing lie with the truth of provision. This is why Jesus can say these hard things. Because the sole thing that sets you and me apart is the Father's love. It's not the size of this church, the Lord knows it. It's not the thing that sets us apart. It's not our career. It's not our beauty. It's not the aesthetic of the homes that we curate. It's, it's nothing like that. The thing that sets us apart is the Father's love. It's that we are dearly loved by the God whom Jesus calls Father. We get to participate in the community of eternal love. That is what sets you, me, we apart. And that is a gift because then we don't have to drum up our own lovableness. We get to receive it. But I tell you from experience that that is possibly the hardest work is actually opening our hands, loosing the grip of control to receive the love and affirmation of our Heavenly Father. And so what are we to do in this? Because God's, God's provision will, if we let it, confront the downward spiral of anxiety. You know that thing that is digging out that pit of despair? God's provision can and will confront that thing if we let it. But what are we to do with this? Well, hear, hear Jesus. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. These words are almost as annoying as do not worry. Because what do you mean, Jesus? And people make whole cottage industries in churchianity around seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what this means. And I do think that there is a substantive reality to like devoting ourselves. Remember, this is a lifestyle, not just a life choice, but like a whole way, a whole life devotion. That's nested in, in this. But here in short, the kingdom is, is Jesus' shorthand for the people in place who increasingly embody God's will here on earth as it is in heaven. The, the kingdom is both now and not yet. The kingdom, because there is still evil and injustice all around us. There is still this deep fissure in the country that we live in over what does it mean to advocate for both women and for life. Like there is a deep tear in the fabric of our being. So God's kingdom is not fully here. It is here and breaking out through us, yet not fully here. So when Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he's talking about the people and places that increasingly embody God's will here on earth as it is in heaven. To seek the kingdom and his righteousness is really to participate in the life of Jesus. 
I don't know if you knew that when you came to church this uh, July 4th weekend, that you would be invited to participate in the life of Jesus. Come on. Like the, the living God? Yeah, just participate in that. And it may, maybe it sounds easy to say it, but it, 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 it's beautiful because you're not alone in this. And I love, like, this is not very presumptuous. Seek it. You, you know what? There's, Jesus doesn't assume you know where it is. He's like, find it. Just find it out. Like, do this. Yeah, like, go with some people and seek this thing out. I, I, the, the simplicity of this is beautiful. Participation is about getting that story, this story of the life, death, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus into our lives and then allowing it to, like, pervade and permeate all the nooks and crannies of our lives, even in those places that we do not think Jesus wants to be. And the places where our unlovableness has taken root and is like a cancer in our lives, Jesus wants to reside there too. He's not afraid of our feelings of unlovableness. Because as John will say, there is a type of love that has the capacity to cast out fear. That is what Jesus is moving us to. So how? Like how do we move into this? And I think that this comes across quite pointedly in Jesus' teaching in the gospel according to Mark. Um, and, and I know that, like, I would love to talk about technique and practices and things that we could pick up. Um, but those are useless if we don't maybe engage with this first thing. In the gospel according to Mark in chapter 8, Jesus has just come off this, like, mountaintop experience. Literally, he has just transfigured on the top of the mountain. And... Uh, Peter, in that space, Jesus also then says, hey, like the cross is the way to life. In other words, death is the way to life. And Peter rebukes Jesus. How many of you on your day-to-day are just rebuking Jesus? This is, like, if you're honest, I think maybe you're like, I can't believe this is happening. What are you doing? Like, this is a story that resonates for you and then for me. Because in the wake of that, Jesus is going to pick up words that say this, um, if you want to follow after me, pick up your cross and die. So um, if you think that the way of Jesus is like gumdrops and butterflies, the words, like discipleship to Jesus starts with a cross. If you want to be my disciple, pick up your cross daily. How, how are we doing, church? <laughs> The invitation to life happens literally in this upside-down way through death. And there's a beauty to this because that means that our anxiety is not our final story, that our fear is not our final story, that the hatred and bitterness that we carry in our heart, that, our, that those are not our final story, that our illness is not our final story, that we have a story that moves through death. And Jesus begins with that place in his discipleship. This is the beginning. I love the way that the New Testament scholar Tim Gombas puts it. He says this, disciples must deny their human reasoning that God's kingdom can be brought in by earthly political means or by military triumph. And they must turn from their desires for glory and honor. Disciples follow behind Jesus on his path to the cross for this is the only way to glory in the end. This is the upside-down kingdom. This is the invitation of Jesus. This is Jesus assaulting anxiety with the truth of God's provision. It will feel like a type of death. But there's life that comes through this. In effect, Jesus is saying when we surrender our illusion of control and we release, begin to loose, trust him to even pry back our fingers 
that, that there is something that comes forth from that that feels like love and light and life. Hear Jesus again here at the end of our teaching as we come to a close. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, food, drink, clothing, God's provision will be given to you as well. Therefore, because you stand in the provision of God, do not worry. Do not apply care in a misdirected way. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. And I don't think for a moment that Jesus is saying, don't plan, don't make some sort of, I don't know, strategic plan. I, that's not really me, but I'm really grateful for all of you who live in that space. Um, I don't think Jesus is saying, yeah, just live with trust because faith or allegiance to Jesus is never blind faith. It is always moving toward the substance of the life of Jesus. So, so, so what is this? Where anxiety clings to the lie of self-sufficiency the way of Jesus clings to self-denial. See, if anxiety has the capacity to touch all of us in all of our life, then the way of Jesus says, I will deny that life so that I can live because this is what it is to live in the upside down. Like the, the upside down kingdom, not like, you know. And really, I'm, not, I'm, I'm hopeful that what you hear here is not me being flippant about the anxiety that is in our lives. And, and if that's something that you live with, I know a great group of people who are therapists who can connect you with a, like, a movement of care in your life, and I would be glad to recommend them to you. I'm not trying to be flippant about the anxiety that we carry in our body or just say something like, well, believe harder. Because you know what that's called? That's called spiritual bypassing. That's putting spiritual language on our pain to pretend that it's a band-aid over what is like a gushing wound. This is not a, we, we actually think that Jesus's love is sufficient that we can meet the pain of our life and by his grace through community over time, we can move through it. So this is not avoiding through spiritual bypassing. This is facing the stuff because Jesus' love is big enough. It is wide enough. It is deep enough to meet us in our anxiety and to stay with us in the pit of despair. That is the love of Jesus. You know, Jesus will die with you in the pit of despair because he's so confident in the love of the Father to deliver us unto death, like from death to life. So you may end your life in despair. Like the stories of despair that it, I just think that Jesus' love is stronger than death. This is the stuff we're trying to get into our lives and in our bodies. So where do we go with this? Well, we start with this thing of self-denial. I hope what, you, what we sense in this is this type of love. We receive this from the psalmist in Psalm 108. This is the cry of the one who wants to be delivered from the pit. Save us and help us with your right hand that those you love may be delivered. See, the fundamental posture of the Father is love. That is where we can live. And in a world governed by self-sufficiency, status, and personal security, the kingdom of God comes like an acute crisis to wake us up. This, the kingdom, can be the acute crisis that we hold that Jesus enters into it with to say that there's life through the death that we feel, the kind of crisis where love actually has the capacity to cast out fear, where we are formed by that love because isolated in fear, alone in our worry, trudging through the anxiety, we don't just need a sermon. 
We don't just need a technique or a medicine. Like, we may need all of those things, but what we need is a love that is bigger than our fear. And I have this maybe foolish hope that that love is embodied in Jesus and present to us in the Spirit. 